welcome, Neil. Eyewitness to Grief. This is Hell, streaming live from our studio above a pool table in a bar. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing today. Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week so far? Uh, basketball's back. I have a reason to live. Hey, did you notice that when we were talking to Miguel Martinez about squatting, that the name of the far-right squat that he brought up was called Casa? It was in Italy called Casa Pound, as in Ezra Pound. I didn't really think about it until like eight minutes after the show ended. Oh, damn. Also, uh, I had a commercial in my dreams the other night, and Alex, can you help me out with something? Can you look up if there's a product called Lux Chocolate, like in Deluxe with, you know, L-U-X-E, Lux Chocolate Milk, or if my imagination made it up, is there anything called Lux Chocolate Milk? A brand new world of uh, branding when we're having a dreams being brought to you by uh no i see uh girardelli which is not lux at all. yeah because uh, at around 4 a.m i woke up startled by an ad in my dreams that went like this lux chocolate milk mexico's favorite and that just jolted me out of my bed out of slumber uh it's not the first time i've had a commercial in my dream i had one for a drug for cats i'll have to look that one up i wrote it down somewhere here on This Is Hell, so far this week we spoke with Miguel A. Martinez, a sociologist at Uppsala University in Sweden, who has a new book out titled Squatters in the Capitalist City, Housing, Justice, and Urban Politics. Miguel explained how the squatting movement is sweeping across Europe in response to homelessness, a rare occurrence on the continent prior to neoliberalism, and an abundance of empty housing caused by the commodification and financialization of housing. Caused by housing not being actually about putting people in homes, but housing is a speculative device. And when you got over a million homeless and over 10 million empty homes, something has definitely gone wrong, and that's something we all know is capitalism. And I tried to figure out why the 1% of the 1%, the elites of the UN Climate Action Summit, actually allowed Greta Thunberg to speak. Unfortunately, it's not because the world is finally willing to address global warming or the burning of fossil fuels. We told you, this is hell. Coming up, we return to the topic of evangelicalism. We learned recently on the show from writer and former evangelical Adam Kotzko, who has a new article at N Plus One magazine on the topic. We were told by Adam that evangelicalism is nothing more than a rationalization for being a dick and not taking any responsibility or accountability for your complicity in causing climate change and all the evils of capitalism, including, including racism and misogyny. This week, we'll find out from another former evangelical Ted DeLay, who has a new book out about the white variety of evangelical evangelicalism called Against What Does the White Evangelical Want. We'll find out all about what the evangelical white evangelical wants later on this morning's show. After we talk to Tad, Alex will tell us this week's question from hell, as well as the prize going to the listener who we think has the best answer. We also got the absolute best email we have received in a very long time, and I know it's one of the best we've ever received because it made me friggin' cry. We'll also tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast during the bonus hour of This Is Hell for subscribers only at patreon.com slash this is hell that's now thursdays at 3 p.m chicago time and we'll wrap up this week's shows with an update on what the hell is happening in turkey and now northern syria when we have jacobin's max zerngast on for like his fifth or sixth appearance on this is hell you may remember we spoke with max after he was arrested and jailed by the turkish government on political charges last month all those charges were dropped after the erdogan government suffered key election losses those defeats not only explain why all charges were dropped against Max, but they also reveal what Turkey is really fighting for in their recently launched war against the Kurds. And what Erdogan and Turkey are fighting for is, according to Max, fascism, as in whether Turkey will become a fascist state or not. And that just became a much bigger deal now that Erdogan this week announced he wants nuclear weapons as well. 
Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is Hell on Monday's live stream. I was trying to wrap my mind around exactly why the UN Climate Action Conference invited and then allowed Greta Thunberg to speak. It didn't make sense to me. It made so little sense to me that it took me a month to finally come to grips with Greta's invite to, let alone her speech at the UN Climate Action Summit. To me, there seemed to be something bigger going on, something about a lot more than Greta. Unless those in the audience at the UN were all masochists who enjoy being ridiculed, condescended to, and blamed for global destruction, I I just couldn't find a reason why the UN would let Greta rip them a new, new one. I knew it wasn't because suddenly the UN was actually going to address global warming, actually take action on climate change, as the summit's title promised. I know that because the amount of fossil fuel burned by the nations represented in the audience of Greta's speech continue to set new records for fossil fuel burned each and every year, always burning more from one year to the next. And a good number of the nations represented at the UN give far more subsidies to the fossil fuel industry that's destroying the planet than they do to alternative energy, which won't save the earth, but it will have will make living a little less hellish over the next few years. On top of that, a good number of those countries also subsidize private transportation at a much higher rate than public transport. So why allow Greta to berate a room full of politicians, politicians who will do absolutely nothing to address climate change? Because those politely listening and later bragging to their grandkids about seeing Greta speak, they sit there smugly knowing that as George H.W. Bush administration chief of staff John Sununu said back in 1991 about a global climate treaty that could have avoided the worst aspects of climate change, including events we are already seeing unfold. Sununu said the treaty was not pursued because the leaders in the world at that time were all looking to seem like they were supporting the policy without having to make hard commitments that would cost their nation serious resources. That was the dirty little secret at the time, Sununu said. For those of you who do not speak politician, resources is money. Politicians, as disgusting as Sununu, simply don't want to come out and say, we did nothing about the climate because of money. Sununu could have said we didn't come to a climate treaty when it would have made a difference because leaders did not want to make hard commitments that would cost their nation's economies, which, like resources, really means money. as another way to disconnect the decision from capitalism. And that's what Sununu was revealing in the exceptional language of today's politics that is, for whatever reason, tolerated by the media and the public. What Sununu was saying was, we didn't address climate change even though we knew it had to be addressed because of capitalism. It is enough to make you hate politicians and and politics, and it's easy to deride all politics because I got to admit it, I hate politicians and politics as they are today too. But I hate politicians and politics because they generally appear to not truly represent me, not even close in any way, with interests far different from mine and a willingness to do horrible, awful, even what religious people might call sinful things that will damn them to wherever their belief sends naughty souls. It's easy to hate politics. The way, at least, I experience them makes politics appear to be pointless, useless, and about nothing more than immediate reactions to what are often quickly passing even trivial events that have been hyped into national emergencies by corporate news media waiting to sensationalize whatever is exaggerated into breaking news. The coverage obsesses with wild speculation by those who are never held accountable and are quickly forgotten. All the while, whatever the current nonsense is in the long run matters to no one, blots out the rest of the world and distracts the masses from actual important issues that go unreported while not only likely having direct effects on the media's consumers, but effects that could likely be deadly. Even beyond the way the media packages and repackages politics for their bottom line, programming likely based on a metric that those who use it see as objective when in fact it is filled with politics erased and made invisible even to those who depend on those metrics every day, especially on those who depend on what they believe are impartial and unbiased numbers. Beyond the media packaging of politics, there's the politics themselves that are easy to loathe. Take congressional and Senate action on recognizing special days for what are supposedly good causes. Besides, if there were no holidays like these, nobody would care anyway, so why even waste your time? More importantly, the political power wasted on naming such days is time that could be spent doing, I don't know, fixing the broken health care, education, and housing systems in the U.S. and figuring out how the hell we can actually fight global warming and rid ourselves 
of our dependence on a military industrial complex for our very existence. Okay, I know that's too much to ask, but the point is politicians should be doing more important things than naming stupid holidays. But let's give politicians the benefit of the doubt and assume that the reason they work so hard on these special days is because they are representing their constituency accurately and their voters have demanded that these days and causes be recognized. And that's even more sad and pathetic than the lawmakers coming up with these days on their own. Of all the things citizens, voters want to do with their political power, recognize some of the stupidest and most redundant celebrations that's how you use your political power as citizens we won't address climate change or police violence or racism or capitalism but we'll sure as hell force our elected representatives to recognize wait exactly what are they recognizing on these special holidays here's some days weeks and months that were sent to the 114th congress in 2016 to be recognized balance awareness week it expresses support for the designation of Balance Awareness Week and recognizes the importance of raising public awareness about vestibular inner ear balance disorders. Now, exactly what am I to do with this awareness? Okay, now I'm aware that there are inner ear balance disorders. I was perfectly aware of that before Congress considered it a holiday, and I'm aware now, and I still don't know exactly what to do with this information. Do I make certain others are aware because I'm pretty sure everyone knows that you can have imbalance due to inner ear problems. Completely pointless waste of time, right? But then I dug a little bit deeper and I started seeing that the days Congress was con were considering actually did reveal a lot about the legislators and what they're doing politically. For example, they considered government Customer Service Day, which, get this, encourages the executive branch to find innovative ways to instill a culture of customer-centered service and each agency to recognize employees who deliver outstanding levels of customer service to the public. Not public service, customer service. But we're not supposed to be customers, consumers of democracy, we're supposed to be citizens and active participants within democracy, not having freedom commodified and liberty considered through some cost-benefit analysis. So, of course, you know this asinine law was introduced by a Republican, right? Wrong. It was Representative Harry Cuellar of Texas, a Democrat. Okay, he's not much of a Democrat, but he is what passes for a Democrat in Texas. Cuellar is so not a Democrat that he has voted with President Trump 70% of the time, higher than any Democrat. And I imagine he has to be pretty high to vote with President Trump 70% of the time. The proposal died in Congress as, or, so the uh, government customer service day is like customer, or is like Congressman Cuellar to me in that they are both dead to me. But that's not all the 2016 Congress was considering when it came to special annual celebrations as of Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Medal of Honor Day, National Vietnam War Veterans Day, National Military Family Month, Gold Star Spouses Day, Gold Star Mother's Day, National Military Brats Day, Children of Fallen Patriots Day, Warrior Care Month, National Former POW Recognition Day, National Military Appreciation Month, Women's Veterans Day, National Korean War Veterans Armistice Day, Air Force Day, Navy Day, Marine Corps Day, Coast Guard Day, Purple Heart Day, U.S. Department of Defense Birthday, National POW MIA Recognition Day, as if all those holidays that already existed celebrating the military were not enough, the U.S. Congress and Senate in 2016 were also considering 40 years of women cadets at the U.S. Air Force Academy Day, N National Marine Corps Day of Remembrance for Terrorist Bombings of Marine Corps Barracks in Be Beirut, Lebanon, Military Retiree Appreciation Day, National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day, Silver Star Service Banner Day, U.S. Navy Aircraft Carrier Month, Welcome Home Vietnam Veterans Day, as well as three that I know passed, Day of the Deployed, Gold Star Wives Day, and National Airborne Day. So sure, it's easy for me to hate politics when the politics our elected representatives practice in the media seems to be purposely pointless and trivial. They spend time creating holidays that are unnecessary, endorse a very undemocratic message, or panders to the military and its industrial complex that already has far too much power over us as it is. I hate politics and politicians as they have been presented in the media and are forced to perform, but the problem isn't politics as in the people using their power to 
make positive change, to make their lives better. The problem is the media and the way they insist politics play out within their profit-seeking corporate narrative of pursuing profits at all costs. It even seems like the media is purposely making us loathe politics, as if their corporate masters are ordering them to make us all feel miserable, weak, full of despair, and seeing people power as utterly futile. The problem is how the media took Greta Thunberg and made her the singular face of a collective movement. Now do the media and conservative conservative powers that be, who celebrate individuals and deride all collective action, Greta is the climate change movement. And any missteps she makes or her parents make will be used to delegitimize the fight for a fossil fuel free world. There is no people, just person power under neoliberalism. And it's always celebrated because it's never feared, never seen as a challenge because really, what can one person do? Not a whole hell of a lot. That's why a powerful collective response is needed. Politics is needed and the right is deathly afraid of both. That's why they allowed Greta to speak. Greta was invited to perform for the media for those in the audience who caused climate change to make the movement about Greta, to make it a singular face, to make Greta the fight against climate change. But the fight against climate change isn't about Greta Thunberg any more than this monologue has been. Like this monologue, the campaigns confronting global warming, especially those in Extinction Rebellion courageously getting right up in the face of climate change, are about the one thing that frightens the far right even more than any prospect of a planet suddenly altered by global warming, and that is the power of the people that is politics to make change. In a world where Greta Thunberg finally speaks truth to power, finally takes down the a-holes who ruined the planet for a generation, even while outing the criminals. Greta is stripped of all of her power by those who insist politics are bad, made powerless by those who work hard to keep power from the people, and fossil fuels keep burning, and the world keeps warming, and we all know politics and politicians are all evil, and all our power goes wasted, and this is hell, but it doesn't have to be. And politics can change that apparently. I'm your host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. Coming up, you know what's scarier than evangelicalism? White evangelicalism. That sounds way scarier, right? We'll also share with you what might be the single best email we have ever received from a listener, and we'll tell you what's happening on Patreon tomorrow at 3 p.m. at patreon.com slash thisishell. That's 3 p.m. Chicago time. And we'll tell you who is going to be on the show on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time as well. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. We recently learned from a former evangelical here on This Is Hell that evangelicalism is religious rationalization for being a dick. We learned that because I did the most hack thing any interviewer, reporter, or journalist can ever do, put words in the mouth of their interviewee. I'll try not to do that right now as we talk to another former evangelical whose focus is on a certain kind of evangelicalism that wants to destroy us all, and that's white evangelicalism. Here to explain why the white Version is so much worse. Religious scholar Tad DeLay is author of Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? Welcome to This Is Hell, Tad. Thanks for inviting me on, Chuck. You have an amazing forward to your book from the religious studies scholar Clayton Crockett, who writes Tad DeLay analyzes and lays bare the underlying structures of evangelical desire. This is most apparent in his book, in this book, which asks, what do white evangelicals want? The short answer is that they want to destroy us, if us includes anyone who is invested in human flourishing and sustainable life on our planet. Who is the us that evangelicals want to destroy? Because I'm afraid that I am in that us. <laughs> I'm afraid you are, Chuck. I, I think that evangelicalism wants to assert a type of hegemony that is not only sadistic towards all those who are not part of its in-group, but also I think it's just as important to recognize that there is a certain, not just sadism, but also a masochism, a type of self-destructiveness. There's a type of enjoyment of anxiety, a type of enjoyment of shame that we need to take seriously as we consider this type of uh, political coalition, which I'm defining 
thing uh, as a type of sect of Christianity, right? Not quite a different denomination, but not a different religion, certainly, but a type of sect that I see as a type of improvisation, a theological improvisation around whiteness, right? So all of the doctrines can be abandoned and discarded no matter how much they insist they are important. What really matters is the, the core of whiteness and the type of social hierarchy that's being clung to within that. You mentioned sadism and masochism, and throughout your writing, you talk about the intertwining of white evangelicalism with things like nationalism and privilege and hate and white supremacy. Is the underlying current in all of those things, even in the masochism, is the underlying current within white evangelicalism then the attractiveness to sadism? I actually think that it's actually the opposite, and I want to kind of be cautious here on how I frame this because there's, you know, if we're talking in, in sexual terms, there was nothing wrong with like sadomasochism, right? But there's a type of enjoyment that's being produced by not just uh, provoking pain so much as provoking a type of anxiety in the other, right? So we see this a lot on the right with talk of triggering, right? It's a, it's a, an enjoyment of provoking anxiety in the person that you're talking with. However, I do think it's actually important to clarify that my, my intuition is that white evangelicals are not so much willing to suffer, uh, for instance, lack of health care so that they can deprive other people of health care. My intuition is that there's actually something primarily destructive that's being, uh, you know, drives in within all of us, right? There's nothing distinct about their, their physiology or psychology. It's just that this is an ideological disposition that enhances or augments the worst impulses in all of us. But I want to say that actually I think the masochism is primary and the sadism is secondary. So it's not that they're depriving themselves so that they can deprive others more. It's that they're depriving everybody because deep down there is an enjoyment of this state of turmoil, right? Um, I don't get to enjoy my sexuality. I don't get to enjoy cultural power. I, I see the, the world that I feel is organized against me, and I want to use conspiracy theories to kind of interpret that so I don't have to kind of plainly see what's in front of me. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but I, I just cannot wrap my mind around the idea of being attracted to provoking anxiety in others. It, what does that reveal about white evangelicalism, if that is the thing that is your, really your driving core to provoke anxiety in others? Well, uh, it's certainly something that should concern us all, right? It's it, We're not talking about something that can be argued with or reasoned with, right? Um, this, I sometimes kind of argue that, uh, you know, this is what I find precisely concerning when Democrats try to appeal to some sort of religious liberalism or religious left or whatever. Um, you will not, as a, as a liberal, be able to brutalize or kill enough people to attract this coalition away from, from where they're voting now, right? Um, but maybe, I mean, one type of story, I, I know a, a guy Probably many of us know a character like this um, who uh, was uh, very much against the health exchange marketplace when it came out in, in what was it, 2014 or so. And he eventually signs up just in time, uh, and there's a diagnosis of a serious illness right around the corner. So he has health care just as he's diagnosed with this critical illness, and nevertheless is an avid Trump supporter and gets really excited about any of these efforts to chip away at Obamacare or eliminate Medicare or whatever else. Now, there's one way of interpreting that, that this, this character is just a fool and doesn't really understand the consequences of what he's doing. But another way of thinking about it, I think, is that there is an enjoyment of just kind of rage at Obama, the first black president, you know, seen as this kind of outsider figure within this, uh, this Southern coalition. But also, I think that there's, I think that when we think about how a certain type of white male reacts to changes that are happening in the country demographically, we also kind of need to take seriously the idea that dying is worth the risk for them. Depriving their own access to health care in the moment that they need it most, it most is, is worth the risk in order to be sadistic to somebody else, right? So we very often kind of think of our problem as a battle of ideas, of foolishness versus smartness. And I want to say that whether we're talking healthcare or climate collapse, uh, you, you are not going to be able to win a battle uh, if you just simply interpret your opponent as duped. When they are um, voting away their access to healthcare or voting away to like voting away breathable air for their future generations, interpret that as a sign of intent, right? They are enjoying something and we need to get better at locating the counterintuitive locations of that enjoyment. And that reminds me of how Democrats seem to be confused, liberal Democrats seem to be confused following the election of President Trump and 
that was how can these people, these poor Appalachians, be voting against? That was a horrible stereotype to come up with. Mm-hmm. They did. Uh, uh, why were they voting against their own self interests? So they are clearly you understand them as not voting against their own self interests. What would you say to a Democrat who said that they are voting against their own self interests? How would you tell them to change their perspective so they could understand the evangelical vote better? Well, I think I'd follow your recent guest, Corey Robin, here and say that there's a there's a type of reactionariness to conservative thought that is about establishing and preserving a certain hierarchy. So, for example, the classic way this works in sort of racialized American politics is that the one percent needs to get the uh, poor whites to not identify with poor people of color, but instead to identify as white. Right now, I grew up in uh, I live in Denver now and I'm at university teacher, but I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, in very Christianized Republican territory, so I feel like I understand this quite intuitively. But I think the data bears this out, right? The, the, the inclination towards racial hostility or hostility towards immigrants tells us a, a lot about like the types of dispositions that people within this coalition will take with regard to the other. Why um, you write that we're at a pivotal moment today for for no perversion of any faith in the past ever held a candle to the destructive potential of white evangelicalism. After all, the fantasy of a sexual encounter leads people to destroy their families every day. Why shouldn't a divine fantasy occasionally lead to the destruction of civilization? Why do you compare a divine fantasy to a sexual one? Because I'm betting that evangelicals have told you that that's pretty blasphemous. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think the the initial impulse, I mean, for people who um, aren't familiar yet, the book is called Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? And it's the, the four chapters or five chapters are against future, against knowledge, against sexuality, against reality, and against society. But the initial impulse impulse was for this against future, um, this uh, this idea that there's some sort of resonance between destructive, uh, you know, use of the environment and deregulation, the denial of climate change, uh, apocalypticism, uh, you know, given the number of Americans that do not expect that there will be a 22nd century before Jesus comes back. But um, as far as like a denial of or a divine fantasy in conjunction with like a sexual fantasy or opposed to one. Uh, I remember being struck when uh, the Islamic State first came on the map in 2014. Martin Dempsey, the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, you know, comes out and does a press conference where he talks about, you know, this is the most radicalized, dangerous sect we've ever seen in the world. Um, you know, they can be contained, but not in perpetuity. And even as recently as last year or so, the public saw the Islamic State as slightly more dangerous a threat than climate change, right? Which is somewhere between a genocidal and extinction level case of misjudged threat calculations, right? Um, but to me, you know, Martin Dempsey, when he, the Joint Chiefs of Staff is coming out saying that the, you know, this is some sort of divine fantasy, they're an apocalyptic cult, they believe that they're in the end of days. And I remember kind of thinking, like, this is like the world that we live in, right? This is a character who is a general sitting atop the an unparalleled nuclear arsenal with an economy that has the ability to raise the sea levels, um, uh, putting out pollution in a world where 9 million people per year are dying of air pollution alone. <laughs> um, you know, like we were talking about a catastrophic loss of the future, anywhere from 250 million to a billion climate refugees by mid-century. And we're going to talk about like this other faith as somehow a dangerous thing that we need to think of. No, uh, the if there is such a thing as a dangerous faith, with, I'm a bit skeptical of locating the danger within the faith itself. I do want to kind of say it's that the faith is augmenting desires and drives within all of us kind of in a unique way in the case of white evangelicalism. But if there is such a thing as a most dangerous faith, white evangelicalism is far and away the most dangerous faith the world has ever seen. It is xenophobic. It is denialist. It is living in an alternate reality. And it, and its commitment to destroy is something we need to take seriously. We're seeing the evidence of this all around us. And we need to take kind of a clear-eyed view of what that is and not dismiss it as some sort of revanchist faith that's going away. Because as the migrants come in, as the world begins to change, that is the type of faith that is perfectly suited to what, uh, you know, what I would want to call the great changes of the 21st century. Do all religions try to exploit desires? Is that a key facet of all religions? And it's just you see it more clearly in white evangelicalism? Um, no, actually, I would want to kind of say the opposite. First off, the, 
the you know the thinking of of different faith traditions as religions is actually a fairly recent thing within our history. We simply don't have a lot of discussion of world religions as a category before the 19th century. Um, so even the the category, I mean, this is something that I talk through with again. I, I teach world religions courses, you know, with college students. But I always want to kind of say that the concept of religion is actually a fairly new category that we have imposed because of this kind of colonial and post-colonial era that we exist in. Um, but other faiths take dramatically different ways of thinking about desire. For example, um, Buddhism is is largely about the idea that desire is the cause of suffering, right? That, that suffering is not in the external world, that suffering is about my reaction to the external world. And it's insofar as I am attached to things that uh, my internal state creates anxiety or creates suffering for me. And so the object is not to uh, accentuate a desire, but instead to taper that desire, to attenuate it, to be aware of it, and to acknowledge it, um, not to feed it. But in the case of white evangelicalism or the many other types of Christianity, um, desire, if we're kind of speaking broadly of like, what do I want? What do I wish for? Do I wish to know God? Do I wish God to be pleased with me? Do I wish to acquire salvation for myself? These are all things that I, as a Christian, would tell you that I would want want, right? So like the acquisition of these things is actively encouraged and there's never enough that you can do, right? Do you want salvation? Well, then you need to, let's say, do an extra Bible study or go to a group or have a meeting or go to church more often or do these other things, right? Um, and you can make that logical case because like built into especially white Protestantism is the idea that salvation does not come through works, right? Which is what you say right before you tell people and you need to work for it really hard, right? <laughs> so uh, you write that um, the old secularization hypothesis told us the world would keep le- leaning and learning and progressing beyond theism, but this proved desperately short-sighted well before 9-11 fatally wounded secular optimism. After the slaughter and our immeasurably worse retaliation, a grotesque violence drenched in our own theological desire, we cannot pretend religion will slumber and fade. How is what you see, uh, how, how do you see this, what happened after 9-11, our reaction to 9-11, informed or reinforced by an outgrowth of any evangelical desire? Well, you know, after 9-11, it was right there on the surface, right? It was with this within this Bush administration that kind of came in, packaged with a group of characters from uh, the project from the New York American Century that, you know, kind of came in there with a commitment to invade Iraq. And then now, uh, you know, in the aftermath of that, we have projections of anywhere from 1 million to 2 million people kind of murdered for no particular reason, right, in the aftermath of that. But that was all kind of unwritten with a type of evangelicalism, right? Not just in the 2000 campaign, but especially in 2004 because there's all this this social reaction against marriage equality and all of that. Um, but I do think that 9-11, the secularization hypothesis for people who don't know, is this kind of old, naive idea that uh, cultures start off with like animism or spirit worship and then progress to multiple goddesses and gods and then progress to one god and then decline into deism and then finally into atheism and secularism. So there's like this idea that uh, just has racism kind of built all throughout it and kind of like the assumption um, that that one's culture is is superior to others who are less advanced because they have more gods and we can count them quantitatively. Um, this is a, a dangerous idea, but it was kind of like on the ropes long before 9-11. But what 9-11 showed us is that actually fundamentalism is going to make a comeback. Um, 9-11 showed us that actually people can do uh, drastically evil things because of theological commitments. And I don't just mean this on the Islamist side. I think also 9-11 shows us a preview of what we're going to see coming down the road, right? 9-11 kind of introduced us to this concept, for example, that Al-Qaeda was pouring over the border from Mexico, right? That That's part of the justification for the Department of Homeland Security. This completely baseless, ridiculous idea that terrorists are pouring over the border, and that's why we can excuse ourselves for demonizing others. Um, this is precisely the same logic that was used recently uh, in, in the lead up to the 2018 midterms when we suddenly heard the administration talk about now Islamic State, no longer Al-Qaeda. But now it's out Islamic State that's, you know, uh, packing themselves in with these migrants uh, heading up from Honduras. And as the climate continues to change and the climate refugees start ticking up, I, I can totally see a type of world 
where the evangelical and reactionary conservative coalition kind of comes together to say we need to close our borders with the liberals who say, no, we need smart borders and technology and monitoring. And we end up with a situation where we have sentry drones or we do drone strikes on migrant caravans in the same way we do careless drone strikes in the Middle East. Right. That to me is the, the what 9-11 gives us is many different ways to kind of think about the future that we are on a path towards, because I do think that 50 years from now looks a lot more like the Trump years than the Obama years or whatnot. Right. Um, these impulses have been in there for a long time. So secular optimism, you mentioned, do you think evangelicals view themselves as optimistic or their view of the or the worldview as one of optimism? Uh, I think, yeah, absolutely. They they perceive themselves as uh, being very happy and fulfilled. Uh, they they will tell you that, which is you know evident. They they need to tell you that for a reason. Uh, they will say they have the best happiness. They will say they have the most sex. They have the uh, greatest rewards and fulfillment. Um, I've even heard evangelicals say that uh, if you are not a true Christian, it's not even clear that you can experience love or happiness in the same way that a Christian can. Right. So they perceive themselves consciously, certainly as having a type of access to enjoyment that the rest of us don't have, right? And it's, again, it's that desire and access to enjoyment that I think works in very kind of interesting ways. How much do we recognize that our own religious beliefs are inflected with white evangelicalism as Americans or evangelicalism in general as Americans, whether we identify as born again, as Christian, as Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist? How much is our understanding of religion here in the U.S. culturally inflected with evangelicalism, whether we recognize it or not? Yeah. Well, okay. So uh, a couple of different examples. Um, One is, let's say, if you were to search the literature for the term born again, you would not really find it until the mid to late 70s when, you know, Jimmy Carter, for example, starts calling himself born again. And the media is kind of flipping out saying, uh, you know, not that this is weird, but like, what does that term mean? We have not heard that term. Um, Or another example is it would be very common for a Christian today to call them, by the way, born again, um, even if uh, fairly only one in six Americans call themselves white evangelical, well over a third of whites, uh, uh, nearly 40%, and this has stayed the same for a few decades, nearly uh, 40% of whites will call themselves born again, right? So my, my intuition is that a lot more white even, uh, whites, uh, born agains or whatever, white Christians are inflected with evangelical sentiments than understand that they are. Um, another example is it's very common for Christians today in America to describe themselves as having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is a term that we start to find a time tiny, tiny bit in the latter half of the 19th century, and then also skyrockets between the 60s and the 80s. Um, and kind of is, and it, it feels very kind of weird to say this, but for most of Christian history, if one Christian insisted that they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that would simply not be a category that would be recognized uh, by their uh, conversation partner. A uh, third example that I really like is that uh, probably nearly everybody in the audience has heard of the idea of a rapture, that Jesus is coming back and going to, uh, you know, redeem the church and pull everybody up into heaven. And there's like seven years of, of hellish tribulation led by an antichrist after that. That's a very common belief. Probably nobody in America has never heard of this story. At least, I mean, nobody with the sort of connections to Christians in the world around them, at least. Um, this is an idea that simply does not appear in the literature until— uh, about 1828, when an uh, 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 Irish uh, uh, Anglican minister called John Nelson Darby introduces this term rapture and says he discovered a secret second coming of Christ where before the final show, Jesus comes back and pulls the church into the sky. And so those types of things, I think, are very interesting. Th- these types of changes happen at key moments, and then they proliferate uh, in, in America uh, a few decades later at key moments when we're exporting lots of missionaries into the world, and that in turn is fueled by lots of oil money. So you have, um, you know, international relations mixed with uh, fundamentalisms in America, mixed with missionaries that are being funded by oil money. And before we know it, we have the explosion of the radio preacher and the megachurch and all of these things that are kind of normal white Christian stuff today are actually a century or two old and sometimes just a few decades old. And we kind of look back at that and think of that as this is just how it is. Well, why do 
believers? Why do white evangelicals want to believe that their religion is something that has been handed down from Moses, has been handed down for thousands of thousands of years? What are they afraid it reveals about their faith when you find out that it is a very, very new faith and belief? Right. And well, I think that what's at stake is the idea that one's faith is kind of a flippant gimmick or a kind of an accident of history rather than something that God himself planned from time eternal. Right. So, um, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church and I, I regularly knew people who, even though the, the Baptist faith is a few hundred years old, and I was a Southern Baptist, it was a convention that literally started uh, for Baptists who wanted to continue to own slaves during the Civil War. Um, so it's, a, it's actually a quite recent uh, faith tradition. Um, but you would also still find people who would say, oh, no, there, there's always been Baptist, even even if the Catholics had control for a few years. There, were, there was always Baptist underground, right? Even if they weren't that in name. Um, but some, what's at stake is like feeling like one's faith is kind of a contingent historical anomaly that was kind of an accident of history. And if it was an accident of history, what other forces led to that accident? of history. So my wager is that what we call white evangelicalism today, and and, and I consider Trumpism type uh, a perfected form of white evangelicalism as a political coalition, my wager is that really we're talking about a lot of sort of roots in the late 19th and early 20th century, but really this is a coalition that forms in response to school integration and civil rights movements. Uh, and then, and of course, abortion is used as a cover for that school integration resistance. You write uh, shame-heavy rhetoric can be boasting in disguise. For example, when Calvinists tell us we're, are, they're sinners saved by grace, they don't experience shame, but instead turmoil. Far mm-hmm. from shame, they are boasting. I cannot wrap my mind around that. How can shame become boasting? How can you both express self-deprecation and pride simultaneously. Yeah. So when, I mean, when I, I, I think that's so funny because everybody who grew up in my type of world out of white evangelicalism, like knows exactly what that means. And it sounds bizarre outside of that context, but to boast and say that I'm a sinner saved by grace, I'm the, you know, the scum of the earth and nothing without God's redemption. That is to say that God did eventually decide to redeem me and you are not redeemed yet. You are not chosen yet. So, um, so it's a type of boasting to kind of say, even if I'm the scum of the earth, uh, how much worse is literally everybody else who was not in my coalition. Um, So I do kind of frame, uh, if you think of like a uh, one thing that people have told me is kind of helpful is I, at one point in the book, I kind of frame a relationship between anxiety and shame and indifference. And if you think about like the uh, on the surface display of uh, shame and indifference, they can actually look the same, right? Indifference is great because I don't have to worry about anything. Shame is the worst of things. So I retreat. I feel like I'm seen too much by the world. I feel like my commitments were in vain. I'm disgusted with myself, right? Uh, externally, they can manifest as the same because shame doesn't jump to defend itself, all right? So like shame just wants to contract and retreat. Indifference also doesn't in- defend itself because it's um, it has nothing to defend, right? So externally, they can manifest the same even if internally they were uh, on a polar opposite ends of the spectrum. But it's in this middle space that I think we find the the, the site that white evangelicalism descri- enjoys. It's a type of turmoil or anxiety that's sort of in the middle register between shame and, and, shame and indifference. So if somebody is experiencing anxiety, um, I, they might jump to defend themselves. You know, here's the list of why I believe the things that I believe. Here's my defenses. Uh, hey, let's turn about, like, turn it back on you. What about this? What about that? That's a state of anxiety. Kind of, in, they, they would prefer to be indifferent to the troubles of the world, but they're trying to avoid shame. And so, on, in, in a sense, the state of turmoil or anxiety is good enough. Uh, anxiety generates a lot of defensive behavior. And I want to say that, kind of in conclusion on this idea, um, I want to say that white evangelicalism, it it feels very weird to kind of give a defense of shame here, I know, on the radio. But I actually do think that a lot of kind of what we're seeing right now is is, uh, the evocation of the idea that uh, all of our cultural safeguards and institutions don't really work without a sense of shame on on the one hand. 
But also, white evangelicalism's problem is not that it creates shame, but that it invests shame unwisely. It tells you you need to be ashamed of your sexuality, but actually they should be ashamed of, I don't know, for instance, destroying breathable air for future generations or locking migrant children in cages and tormenting the child that they have kidnapped from their parents. That's worth feeling some shame. If you're, if your entire uh, you know, religious and political commitment aims in that direction and now you are here looking at it in the face. You write that if white evangelicals feel the turmoil of God's judgment, they enjoy it alongside confidence and predetermined salvation. Mm -hmm. This narcissism justifies indifference at best, cruelty at worst. How important is narcissism to white evangelicalism? Is narcissism one of the pillars of white evangelicalism? (laughs) Uh, I like the way you say that. I don't think I quite see it that way. But yeah, perhaps we could think of narcissism as a type of pillar, right? Um, if I have absolute faith that my God is the correct God, I've, I've created that God in my head. And now that God is, is my defense mechanism telling me that I'm doing all right. And I want to shape the world as my God wants it shaped, which is to say I want to shape the world the way that I ultimately want it to be shaped, right? So, so it is a very narcissistic structure. Um, and this is especially difficult to navigate in the class classroom where my job, of course, is not to sway students out of their belief, but I do have to think about like, what is it that they are desiring? What is, uh, what, what are their sort of defensive structures? What other changes are they going through in their lives? And, and how is this type of narcissistic self-codependence in a sense, if, if I could use that term, uh, counterintuitive as it may be, how is that kind of narcissism actually augmenting and supporting um, other characteristics about their identity? You write that fantasy infuses turmoil with the excitement of some divine vision, as if to say God wants you to feel this way, so be grateful. Is white evangelicalism living in a fantasy world any more or less than any other religion, in your opinion? Mm, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I don't actually want to, I, I, I'm actually going to push back and say that I don't want to go so far as critiquing any other religion. I, I don't feel like that's my. Um, place in this. I'm critiquing the thing that I knew and loved and then came out of and now find quite concerning. Um, But I, you know, I myself am not a theist. I've not been a theist for quite some time. Uh, I'm very skeptical of the ideas of any kind of magic or supernaturalism or ghosts or gods or anything like that. Um, So I am broadly very skeptical of the types of beliefs that usually go under the the rubric of, of, um, uh, you know, faith and broadly construed. Um, but I do find what is what is troubling is not the belief in gods; it's the confidence within that belief and the narcissism and cruelty that that confidence justifies, and and that's why white evangelicalism seems like a particular threat to me. And you write that fantasy justifies cruelty, entices with a sense of loss, and ignites a drive for revenge. The right loves loss. This is the serious lesson for conservatism and fundamentalism. Thrive when they feel they are losing. The fantasy of loss lets them kill and feel righteous while killing. The Mm -hmm. fantasy of loss, this all sounds like victimhood to me, victimization. (laughs) And all you hear often from white evangelicals from the right is how the left, how liberals, how how they're the ones who are always uh, playing the victim card. So how is that they how important is victimhood is victimization to white evangelicals? And why do they uh, broadcast that feeling upon others? Right. Well, it you know it's a, it's a great justification for aggression if you can perceive yourself as being on the defense, right? And, you know, kind of like any war ever has two sides, the defense and the preemptive defense, right? And it, nobody ever sees themselves as as a, rightly as an aggressor for some reason. Um, but here, I'm also influenced by again this this idea from Corey Robin in the reactionary mind that the right loves loss. If you if you actually go back to the 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 founding work of Edmund Burke, right? It's it's all about the loss of hierarchy. It's about like what we must regain. It's about the projection of this nostalgia. And the nostalgia for imaginary past can justify any aggression, right? There is no aggression that is too gratuitous if you perceive yourself as having lost something. So we get characters like Rush Limbaugh attacking, saying that, you know, the liberals have control of the media, which the liberals, I mean, the media is is all about uh, money, right? (laughs) Of course, you know, a a capitalistic enterprise is, of course, a reactionary and conservative institution. Or you have uh, Fox News saying that they are going to be a counterbalance 
sense to uh, the gratuitous, um, you know, uh, distortion of reality kind of represented by CNN, which is, you know, to them like a, you know, a left wing ultra Marxist institution or something like that. Same with like NPR or whatever. None of these are ever centrist or reflecting reality. They're reflecting a counter reality. So the right takes it for granted that it too should be able to play the game of reflecting a counter reality. So um, I think one of the best examples of this is when, uh, you know, Fox News is, is pressed on like, well, are you conservative or, or not? And, and, and they, are you fair and balanced or conservative? Or like, what is that? And sometimes the explanation is, well, we're a conservative counterbalance to the liberal. So on the whole, we all make a fair and balanced network. Um, or sometimes it's more specific. No, we represent all sides in this debate. So we actually are fair and balanced just ourselves, right? The, the justifications can kind of move around. Uh, you write, uh, white evangelicalism's fantasies are rejection and enlivening of the world, but its harmful masochism and sadism is always a display for the big other. It's in capital mm. O, other. The masochist enjoys suffering because he imagines the big other is enjoying, or to put it in Christian language, he must suffer because God is testing his faith. If it turns into sadism, what the sadist is seeking is not the other's suffering, but the other's anxiety. Does believing in a cruel God make white evangelicals cruel, even justifying their cruelty? I think that there is a, a potential for that that we should not discount and believing in a cruel god does justify behavior i also want to say that my intuition is that more often instead of um, behavior conforming to belief in a cruel behavior conforming to a cruel god that more often belief conforms to behavior and so if i want to hurt somebody who is, for example, not a white male, then I will find reasons to justify my sorts of privilege and, and why I should be able to hurt them. Um, so I will gravitate towards a God that gives me some sort of license to harm. So I, I do want to kind of clarify that, that uh, sometimes behavior conforms to belief, but we do need to take seriously the idea that people generate beliefs to correspond to what they want to do in their behavior. You write there's a massive generational gap given that 26% of older baby boomers are white evangelicals while only 8% of younger millennials identify similarly. If this faith mm -hmm. continues to decline and this book becomes irrelevant in the years ahead, I'll consider it a welcome mercy. What do sure. you think the likelihood is that your book on white evangelicalism's pure evil will mercifully become <laughs> irrelevant? We'll only replay this interview as with some hint of irony. Yeah, and just and just kind of laugh it off. Exactly, the best, exactly. The best of days. Um, no, I, I, my hope genuinely is that this book becomes irrelevant. I would love to see you know us have some sort of collective awakening after this hellscape that we live in right now, um, and, and perhaps that is the case. A few problems with that is I do I do mention of course that twenty six percent of boomers are white evangelicals, while only eight percent of millennials uh, similarly uh, define themselves, and that's within a cultural population within uh, where seventeen percent of people are white evangelicals, or probably a percentage or two less now since that poll was conducted. But white evangelicals make up more than a third of the Republican Party. Um, uh, also, it's not clear to me that people who don't use that term are necessarily not exactly what we're talking about. Again, nearly 40% of whites identify as uh, born again. And also, um, I'd want to say that some of our research on the nuns tells us that those with no political affiliation uh, tells us that uh, long after losing faith in uh, Jesus, a lot of people, or long after stop not no longer talking about themselves in terms of I'm a Christian, uh, a lot of millennials will still say that they pray every day to Jesus or have a personal relationship with Christ, but they won't call themselves Christians. So the fact that fewer people are calling themselves white evangelicalism might just tell us that the term has become stigmatized. It doesn't necessarily tell us that this coalition is gone. Um, and my wager is that even though I think it's on the decline, certainly. It's probably not on the decline as much as it looks like in the data from self-reports. And in B, um, I always tell my students, you live in the time of the greatest migration that will ever exist in human history. And uh, a faith perfectly attuned to see itself as, as the one chosen uh, and all others as a stigmatized socially or racially other uh, this is a type of faith that is perfectly attuned to to deal with the great changes, to be reactionary, to put up the borders. I do think that we are going to see something like white evangelicalism, whether or not it is white evangelicalism as it is now, during the great changes of the 21st century in response to climate change, because we are going to see the most vile xenophobic faiths that we have ever seen before in history. 
Wow. On that happy note, one last question for you, Tad. Uh, we have been speaking with re- religious scholar Tad DeLay, author of Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? This is Tad's third book, with his most recent prior to Against being 2017's The Cynic and the Fool, The Unconscious in Theology and Politics, and 2015's God is Unconscious, Psychoanalysis and Theology. Tad is an assistant professor of religious studies and a faculty member with several philosophy and humanities departments in Denver, including the Metropolitan State University of Denver and Colorado Community Colleges. And you can find out more about Tad at his website, taddelay.com. Follow him on Twitter at Tad Delay, and you can subscribe to Tad on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tad Delay. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, Tad, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. What do you believe is a bigger threat to the United States, the rise of fascism or the rise of white evangelicalism? They are the same. How are they the same? They are the same in the sense that uh, white evangelicals desire to be a uh, sort of a select, chosen, elect people, um, uh, differentiated socially and racially. Um, that that is a deeply fascist desire. Uh, fascism is associated with a number of things that I explore in the book, but reactionary politics, sexual repression, middle class, lower middle class values, uh, a desire for hierarchy. These are all um, types of things that, in the American iteration of this type of fascism or pre-fascism that we are kind of uh, on the edge of, I think that it is fair to say that white evangelicalism uh, for the American version of this, uh, the white evangelicalism is a type of faith that is perfectly attuned to accentuate all of those characteristics that will be unique in the American iteration of a type of fascism. Then what happens when we see, you know, white evangelicalism or evangelicalism in general as this innocuous thing that is on TV on Sunday mornings that is easily avoidable? What happens when, and I'm not saying that they are collectively in any way, but what happens when groups like Antifa do not see the threat of fascism within white evangelicalism. Um, well, I, 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 this is a type of faith that is not going to go away for right now, and I, we need to take it seriously. Uh, the, it has a commitment to destroy, and it enjoys destroying. Um, and we can kind of laugh it off as ridiculous, or we can laugh off its uh, ridiculous aspects, but understand that underneath that there is a real core of destruction, both, again, of the other, but also of the self, and it can't be reasoned with. It can only be defeated, um, and that is what I think uh, is, is good about groups like Antifa is not just trying to defeat them at the ballot box, but try to uh, overtly say, like, no, there are people who are going to stop this type of behavior. Um, but no, let's let's recognize that, that we're not just talking about people who believe a whole lot in substitutionary atonement or an infallible Bible or, uh, you know, four in 10 Americans rejecting the idea of evolution, right? We're talking about a faith that is that is built upon the idea that, that black people do not deserve the same human rights as white people and that men are superior to women and that violence, uh, whatever we, violence we can mete out, God will do infinitely worse at the end of time, which is right around the corner when two-thirds of white evangelicalism, uh, well, two-thirds of white evangelicals don't believe that there will be a 22nd century before Jesus comes back. There is no reason to worry about the climate. There's no reason to worry about education. There's no reason to worry about anything in society um, except the preservation of a certain hierarchy that God is going to come back uh, and assert himself very, very soon in their minds. So that that is the type of thing that we need to take very seriously, I think. And I, I heard those connections, those links to fascism right at the very beginning of our conversation when you said that white evangelicalism can't be reasoned with. But I wanted to save that for the end so we could do a little bit of a callback there. Tad, thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fantastic book. I really appreciate the fact that you came on our show today to discuss with us. But more importantly, I can't believe that you actually listen to our show. So thank you very much. Tad. Oh, thanks for inviting me on. And one more thing. I also have a podcast version. Very easy to find because there aren't that many Tad delays. But um, I do have a podcast version version of the book that's kind of a truncated version for those who don't have the time or money. Um, so uh, feel free to check that out as well for free. Is that at taddelay.com? Uh, you can find it off of that or you can just search on iTunes, Stitcher, like any of the, the big ones. You can search Tad Delay and find this uh, 10 set uh, one-off podcast series. All right. Thank you very much, Tad. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your week. All right. Thanks for having me on. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Alex, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, uh, what are you filling the void with? (laughs) 
What are you filling the void with? Old CDs. I think I'm filling it with old CDs. Uh, what's the prize we're going to give away to the listener who has the best answer? Do you remember? Do you know? No, I don't know. What are we giving uh, away? Well, It'll be something TBD. Okay, TBD. We'll give away some TBD. So what are you filling the void with? What are you filling the void with? Leave your response at Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio, our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. It's time for listener feedback, and the first email made me cry. Rennie writes, Hi, Chuck and crew. I've been listening to your broadcast for about two months now. I tune in every Saturday morning. As I drive the van, my boss pays me $14 an hour to both operate and maintain for the entire business with no guarantees of hours in order to deliver flowers to the most absurdly privileged sociopaths the North Shore can muster. This is hell, I think, as my boss proceeds to tell my co-workers that I'm secretly a man. Thank God that the free market decided my heinous crime of not being a man cancels out my four-year engineering degree and extensive work experience while still holding me accountable for the debt incurred. This truly is hell, but I feel so much less alone hearing you and your guests. I love that. See, I told you I'm going to cry. I loved the interview with Jenny Brown last week, and I was delighted to hear her explicitly include trans folks when discussing abortion and reproductive health. I howled with laughter when you asked Andrea Boyles what's wrong with Whitey, and I felt validated hearing that Westerners idolizing Norway are just praising the country for having oil and gas money and being white. Everything you do helps unravel the mess of contradictions that neoliberalism dumped into my brain over the last 25 years. Rennie doesn't use the word dumped, but a profanity for defecating. Rennie continues saying that what we do is important, dirty work. Thank you, Remy, they, them. No, thank you, Rennie. Do not despair. This is hell is on the air, and we will always be there for you and everyone who has had neoliberalism crap its decades of BS into their minds. We truly and deeply appreciate you listening, Rennie, and could not be more proud of having you as a member of our audience. David has a suggestion for us, and David actually personally knows the guest. David writes, friends with Ibrahim Parlock, Kurd dude in Harbert, Michigan, who has been harassed for years by the Department of Homeland Security, detained for 10 months back in 2004, has big community support, a lot of dynamics in this whole story. I spoke with him last week as old friends. He's the only person who ever kicked my ass at tennis, a frickin' Kurd versus me, and he schooled me, just beat the hell out of me. Okay, so the serious part now, I called Ibrahim as he has intimate knowledge of the situation in Rojava, intimate, and also I'm much more, a much more sophisticated understanding of what's going on right now than anything in mainstream, leftist, progressive, any media, really. Given the space to articulate the politics of the region and its implications worldwide, I have heard nothing of this caliber. Wondering if you want to put Ibrahim on your show, I could facilitate the connection. His personal legal status here as a Department of Homeland Security defined terrorist is up in the air, but he's speaking out, wants to speak out, knows the effing situation better than anybody out there. And the clincher for me and why I'm writing to you, he's willing to speak out at a time when his doing so really puts him at risk of deportation, torture, etc. Effing admirable inspired let me know if interested maybe we'll meet you sometime soon only recently realized your wednesday office hours thing at carrie's is only a couple of blocks from me cheers david first of all david you spelled carrie's k-a-r-i apostrophe s i don't know what what's with my accent is there something wrong with my accent? Because nobody knows how to spell carries. It's either E-Y-S or something crazy like this. It's C-A-R-Y-S. Very easy. Anyway, the story that David is talking about, about Ibrahim, I've been reading about this now for a couple of years. Every time I pass through the southwestern Michigan area and buy local newspapers or watch local news in the South Bend to St. Joe's, Benton Harbor, Michigan City area. So, David, we are looking into it. If listeners know anything about Ibrahim Parlak, send us if any information you may have. And if you want to find out more about Ibrahim, check out freeibrahim.com. Justin, who has sent us all sorts of cool stuff in the mail, and you can mail us cool stuff too at This Is Hell. Second floor, 2251 West Devon, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Hey, Chuck, happy late anniversary. I remember it's October 14th as my birthday falls on the same day with school and work. I haven't had a chance to sit down and type this out until now. And I thought he was talking about our show's anniversary. Apparently, 
He's talking about mine and my girlie's anniversary, which is really weird that anybody would remember that from listening to the radio show, but I guess I've been on for 23 years, so maybe. Anyway, getting back to Justin's email, speaking of time, you may have no not you may have not noticed, Alex, and maybe Alex has, but Eat Fart 69 is no more. After listening to your interview with Richard Seymour, I shared the interview with my partner, Hans. After listening to it, she suggested I pay more attention to the screen time function on my phone and came to find out I was spending over two hours a day on my phone effing around with social media apps. I instantly deleted my Twitter, replacing that time lost with reading and drawing. I've been trying to follow lessons in an interesting book. I guess maybe it could be considered a manual called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards. Look out, Ralph Steadman. That is a classic book by Betty Edwards. As I was scraping blood off the walls of a stuffy apartment I was painting the other day, I thought of a few ideas while listening to the recent introduction regarding This Is How Merchandise. I'll try to send y'all a care package in the next few weeks. Anyways, congrats on the new show schedule and cheers on having weekends back i'm happy for you your lady and that this is hell crew cheers justin we will m- miss eat fart 69 as not only did eat fart 69 share this is hell but also eat because eat fart 69 is the single most creative clever and insightful twitter handle ever and it never disappointed and we will share with everyone whatever Justin sends us on an upcoming show, so stay tuned in for that. Chris also sent a guest suggestion. Hi, Chuck. Uh, not had a chance to read Natalie Ola's book, Steal As Much As You Can, How to Win the Culture Wars in an Age of Austerity, but seen a couple of articles that make me think she'd be a great guest. Keep up the good work, Chris. Chris, we are already on that. We had already been researching and looking forward to Natalie's book coming out, and Alex had already been in contact with her. So thank you very much for the suggestion. And uh, there you go. That's listener feedback. Email us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message us on Twitter at thisishellradio. Tonight, like every Wednesday evening, we will be holding This Is Hell office hours at the bar downstairs from where I am sitting right now. Carrie's Lounge, that's C-A-R-Y-S. Really, do I have some weird Detroit, Chicago accent that nobody can ever understand how to spell carries? I, I, I just, is it something? It's me. It's got to be me. 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge Little India neighborhood. Drop by, meet the This Is Hell crew and other listeners to the show. It's a great way to make friends and influence people. Join us each and every... Each, any, and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Just for dropping by, we'll give you This Is Hell advertising stickers and show-related books. That's This Is Hell office hours every Wednesday evening, including this evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge, Little India neighborhood. Alex, first, who's on tomorrow's live streaming podcast for subscribers to our bonus show that we air or stream or whatever every week at patreon.com slash thisishell. What's the classic archived interview we're playing tomorrow uh, we're talking with saskia sassen part of it is because i just like saying saskia sassen <laughs> uh who wrote an open democracy piece called the new executive politics a democratic challenge i don't think this was, was 2009 i believe yeah i don't think this was her first time on the show either and she's been on several times and she really is a fantastic guest and we should look into getting her back on and i will reveal only for subscribers on patreon exactly what I am an expert at, what I am qualified to write about in my monologues, because I really don't want to come off as an arrogant know-it-all prick, and that can be really difficult when you are voicing your own opinion. Uh, and then what's happening on Friday's show? Uh, we're doing an interview that we couldn't do yesterday because the power and, or sorry, the uh, phones and internet was out in our entire neighborhood. Uh, we're talking to Max Zerngast about his new Jacobin piece, Turkey's War in Syria is a War for Fascism. There was a really horrible stink of burning throughout the neighborhood, too, yesterday. So I think that one of the boxes uh, was hit by lightning or something, because I've had that stench before when we've been offline and not been able to get online in the past. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thanks to Tad DeLay for being our guest, the author of Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. 
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.